Everybody has a good book inside of them, waiting to be written. But also, some people have a bad book in them. Welcome to Novel Ideas with Chris and Elsa, a bi-weekly podcast where each episode we'll look at a book people have deemed as questionable. Then we'll decide if the book will be joining what we're dubbing the Library of Cursed Books. So come join us this week as we discuss True Allegiance by Ben Shapiro. So I'm going to start this by saying Ben Shapiro, just for a brief background of him, was born in 1984, famously became a young columnist at the age of 17, graduated from UCLA and I believe Harvard with a Juris Doctorate. Either way, what what is your knowledge, Elsa, of Ben Shapiro and his writing? Um, <laughs> so my knowledge of Ben Shapiro's writing is true allegiance, sadly. My knowledge of Ben Shapiro is limited. I know that he is Jewish. I know he is a failed Hollywood Nepo baby. I know that he got a bad lip job done, even though he denies it. And I know that his leanings tend to be very right-wing. Most of what I know about Ben Shapiro is either from talking to you or listening to, like, Behind the Bastards or Knowledge Fight. Okay. So we're covering True Allegiance. Now we're going to briefly discuss the book, and then we're going to get into some of the background of the book in this episode. And then our second episode, because Ben Shapiro... Being the monster that he is, has to have two episodes for us to dissect what he wrote. Guys, I'm a little bit nervous about this conversation. (laughs) So, a brief discussion of the book True Allegiance. True Allegiance follows a character named Brett Hawthorne. Brett Hawthorne! Who is supposed to be the U.S.'s youngest active-in-the-field general who goes after terrorists and discovers a terrorist plot that when he comes home, he tries to solve, but the best way to claim that he solves it is through his own biases. And has a blood feud with the president, who is named Prescott, who is clearly supposed to be Barack Obama. But also, Barack Obama exists in this universe. More on that later. So we follow, from character perspectives, Brett Hawthorne, the president, Mark Prescott, a lady named Soledad Ramirez, and then Brett Hawthorne's wife, who is named Ella, who we'll get back to later because she's only going to pop up in our actual book discussion. Either way, and also there's a character named LaVon who we're going to talk about in this episode. His chapters are very problematic, to say the least. I would argue maybe the most problematic, but we'll get to that when we discuss the book more in depth. But we're going we're gonna to jump into it. There is some stuff I found when I was reading the book that led me to other books because I couldn't let go of the fact that Ben Shapiro made this really weird quote in the book, and we'll get to that. But we're going to start by discussing Soledad Ramirez, who is just a giant allegory for the Bundys. And Elsa, do you know anything about the Bundys? Not really, if I'm being honest. Mm. You tried to tell me a little bit about it not too long ago, but it's a little murky. Like, reading this book has destroyed my brain. So everything you tried to tell me went kind of into my brain and then, like, out of my brain in, like, a weird, like, primordial soup. Okay. <laughs> well, with the Bundys, I would definitely recommend that people that are curious about them listen to Bundyville, the podcast, because it is actually really in-depth and really well made. But the Bundys are a family of Mormons oh, boy. who got into a conflict with the United States government over grazing fees. Now, this all stemmed from the fact that the U.S. Department of Parks and Agriculture said, hey, you've got time allotted to graze. You can only graze so much off of the land because the rest of it is for an endangered desert tortoise. Okay, that makes sense. 
cattle not being native to the desert were eating up all the grass and they were like, oh, we can't have this turtle go extinct. Okay, fair enough. Well, the Bundys did not like that. Of course and, not. And where Cliven, who is the head of his family, got this weird idea that he no longer had to listen to the U.S. government hmm. because he started huffing sovereign citizen ideas. This sounds like something Shapiro would not approve of, but this character we're talking about was glorified. So I'm curious yeah. to hear more about this. So Cliven Bundy starts taking his cattle out and getting basically ticketed for grazing and not paying his grazing fees, but he's still taking them out to the public lands to graze, and the government's like, hey, you owe us money. Okay. So he doesn't pay that money. Go figure. The U.S. government shows up and basically says, we're going to seize your cattle. Okay. And then when that happens, they basically say, you can't do that. We're going to take our cows back. And then a bunch of right-wing lunatics found out about this and said, oh, we're going to go help the Bundys get their cows back. So you had a bunch of one percenters and a bunch of like really fringe groups show up. To support the Bundys. What was their reasoning for that? What do they get out of helping these people? All these people think that the that we're just inches away from kicking off a civil war. So these people, anytime that there's a chance to go up against the U.S. federal government, they run to it. Hmm. Wow, this feels like grasping at straws for them. So... The Bundys, particularly Cliven, his background as a person is interesting because he didn't start out radicalized, he slowly became radicalized. There were things with that, the, that he witnessed the U.S. government do that caused him to go down that path. And it just furthered his, like, in the 90s, he basically became further radicalized when he saw Ruby Ridge and, and Waco take place. Ruby Ridge was when a guy was selling sold-off shotguns in the Northwest, sold one to a federal agent, and the federal agents were like, you can't be selling sold-off shotguns, and wanted to arrest him, and then he decided to have a shootout at his cabin. Brilliant. Sounds like a quality guy. With the federal government and his family. His wife ended up dying, as did, I believe, his older son in said shootout. That really wasn't worth the whole business of selling illegal guns. You lost everything that means something to you over what? And Waco is famously the Christian divinities, I believe. is. I don't remember their exact name. Either way, they were stockpiling ammunitions. There's a big debate on whether or not the U.S. government should have even sieged on that compound or not. But... Bundy saw these things happen, and it just further radicalized him, and other ranchers became radicalized around him at the same time, and they started saying, we don't need to pay the government for this. I love how they think they can just decide that. And after that, this is where, like, the Bundy standoff happens, and they consider it a big win because the government doesn't want to end up in a shootout with ranchers. That wouldn't be a cattle. good look. <laughs> that would be a pretty bad look. And so nothing. the government pulled out and the Bundys basically were like, yay, we won, as did all those feds. Okay. So this that is... That sounded like a stalemate, though. This is where he gets the inspiration for Soledad Ramirez. But the problem is, is a lot of the people he modeled at her after and that he partners her with are racist white supremacists. Yes, definitely so. He's he's trying to sugarcoat it and make it seem like she's not because he's like, oh, she's Hispanic. There's no way. Anyone can be racist. But when you look at like when you look at the people he has show up to defend her yeah. in the in the incident in the book, which we will get into in the next episode. He has motorcycle gangs show up and essentially is describing sovereign citizen like one percenters showing up to defend her. 
Yeah. Well, and let's not forget the rescue mission they go on for another major racist. But unlike, and we'll get to that, but unlike the Bundys, her cat, her event that causes them to go after the U.S. government to go after her is her bombing a dam. Yes. Now, the Bureau of Land Management are the ones that handle, like, all of the agricultural stuff as well as the national parks. And that's the ones, now that I'm thinking about it, that the ranchers have, like, the big problem with. Okay. The other problem there with those sovereign citizen types and radicalized ranchers, a lot of them, and particularly one in particular, got in trouble and have been busted for trying to bomb Bureau of Land Management buildings. I see the parallels here between that and what Soledad's storyline is. So, with Soledad, she is a terrorist. She, oh, absolutely. And she is, like, even though he he plans her out to where he's like, oh, she bombed the dam and there were no casualties, that's very hard to not know. Also, you're bombing a dam which would cause flooding, which is still going to ruin other people's lives. And potentially cause casualties. Yes. I mean, there's no way it didn't cause at least a small number of casualties. Yeah. So, with with that in mind, he he is trying to frame her as, like, she's in the right. But she's really not. She's in the wrong. Because, again, it's a similar situation where that group is trying to protect an endangered species that's valuable to the ecosystem. Well, also, this kind of makes me think of a question I have for Ben Shapiro. What makes certain acts of terrorism ethical and okay versus acts of terrorism that are evil and just horrible and just self-serving? Well, we'll... We'll get to that because I have a quote that I'm going to share with you at the very end that we're going to discuss because I find it very problematic, but also very revealing as to Ben Shapiro. And it answers my question about quote unquote ethical terrorism. I'm okay. I'm curious. It's it's and a little scared. It's a doozy. I'm a little scared. (laughs) Guys, I'm scared. But with her, she is partnered up with basically racists and. At one point in the book, they when they do go after said racist, there is the, the uh, they go after another cop, who by aligning himself, I can only just assume is also racist, with these people. Um. They go to free him, and they dress up, and they and the people outside the prison are there, and they identify them as being white supremacists and it's it's weird that ben shapiro immediately jumps to that instead of just outside agitators or using some uh, he just says oh no he has the person of color character basically immediately say oh and all of a sudden white supremacists show up it's a weird way to frame that which to me tells me that he knows that he partnered soledad ramirez with white nationalists and racists. It kind of shows you what his intention is and who he's trying to save the image of. Yes. But that's pretty much it on the Bundy stuff. Like, she's very heavily, like, bluntly brick wall in the face coded as being basically his allegory of a Bundy. Okay. Interesting. Now we're going to get into the POC, person of color, character of LaVon. LaVon is a character who supposedly lives in Detroit and has a lot of, like, just gross stuff around him that no actual person would be like this. It is just a fabrication of Ben Shapiro, and the people he has interact with LaVon also involved in civil rights movement stuff are just as gross and I found a book that basically shows where Ben Shapiro got all these gross ideas a lot of people have said that he modeled it after Black Lives Matter that's true to a point but I found an actual organization that he more so modeled it after which is even grosser okay because I definitely was 
thinking that Black Lives Matter was a big inspo for that. It was, but it wasn't. But also, we need to get out of the way. One of the things, when I say Ben Shapiro is racist, one of the things that basically leans into this is the very first person of color color character he introduces he has that character drop the n-word oh you're talking about Derek. no you're not talking about the best friend because that no. was the first first person of color of, first person of color he introduced is the yard the famous football player at the high school oh the one is him. the one that Derek rescues him from yeah you're right yard was a couple pages before Derek. my bad yes. <laughs> and I'm going to just read a passage so everybody can listen to this ridiculousness. So today, and this is talking about Brett in the cafeteria for context. Teenage Brett still in school, not Brett as we know him throughout the book. So today he sat alone until he made the mistake of looking up. Standing above him, glaring at him, was a behemoth, a black kid named Yard. Nobody knew his real name. Everybody just called him Yard because he played on the school football team, stood six foot five, clocked in at a solid 280 pounds, and looked like he was headed straight for a lifetime of prison workouts. The coach loved him. Everybody else feared him. If Brett had looked up everything, if Brett hadn't looked up, everything would have worked out just fine. But then again, he didn't have much a choice given that Yard grabbed him by the shirt and pulled him out of his seat like a rag doll. The yard mumbled something under his breath. What? said Brett. I said, yard growled. Did you just call me an N-word? Because I just heard you call me N-word. The entire room churned to watch the impending carnage. And I used N-word because I'm not saying the N-word. It's gross that Ben Shapiro would even write any character saying that. I don't think anybody that is white or just in general I don't like that word I don't like what it stands for I feel like he didn't have to do that he wanted to do that and it was gross I also found problematic that in introducing him right away he's like yeah he's built for a lifetime of prison workouts like yep. immediately implying that because he is a child of color that's his future also that's very telling Proof that Ben Shapiro spent very little time in high school with interacting with other people is saying that everybody only knew knew the star football player by the name Yard. You're going to know what your classmates' names are. Also, it'd be on his jersey. Yeah, his last name would be on his jersey. So you would have <laughs> at least a name to call him, but also... I would like to think people know their classmates' names. I still remember all of my classmates' names, and I'm 37 at the time of recording. Yes. Well, I guess... It's gross, and also it's just one of those things that, like, stands out. It's the first person of color he introduces that he has his main character interact with at high school age, and his immediate thing is to be like, oh, I've got a person of color here. I'm going to use the N-word. I'm going to use the N-word, and I'm going to tell you he is going to be a criminal. And I'm going to make him just aggressive towards the one white character because racist going to talk about racism and try to blame it on the race he's racist against. But and it's it's one of the reasons why that I'm just like besides all the stuff against Islam and Muslims and this that is incredibly racist, he basically from the gun, this is page 9 where he's dropping the n-word. Yeah, and it just continues to be disgustingly racist especially when we get to Levon's chapters like that's nothing but racist thing after racist thing it's just you'll understand when we talk about it it's just disgusting racism and it tells me so much about Shapiro's character but now we're gonna move to the quote that sent me looking and gave me the discovery of a book I will title later to let you know but first, I want to read the quote that sent me down a rabbit hole that basically exposed me to where Ben Shapiro gets all his views on civil rights. Ooh-wee. And in the context of this is the character Levon we just discussed is talking to a character named Big Jim, who the closest allegory in the real world that 
Shapiro was more like more than likely modeling him after is Al Sharpton. And this character is talking to Levon about his role in causing riots within the city due to the death of a black kid, which we will discuss in episode two because it's disgusting. I, man, just remembering that scene just makes me feel so sick. But this is the conversation, and I will tell you the quote that stood out to me. This is... This is Big Jim talking to Levon. He said, no, you were the bad cop, and I was the good cop. That's how the game is played. You're too young to remember Marion Barry, now that that was a professional. Played the game to perfection, man. He told the Black Panthers that they ought to make a little trouble in town, and then he played the moderate. Told the white folks that he could calm them down if they just signed a few checks. One time he told me, I know for a fact that white people get scared of Panthers, and they might just give money to somebody a little more moderate. You, Levon, are the new Panthers, and I'm the moderate. That that just makes me so uncomfortable. Like, I started to get chills, like uncomfortable chills as you were reading that. And remembering how I felt when I read it initially, I remember being so upset mm. and so uncomfortable. Now, he, if I remember right, he uses this quote again, the I know for a fact white people get scared of Panthers and they might give a little money to somebody a little more moderate. Because that's what made me go looking for this quote. Because it's weird that you would quote make this quote twice in a book. And I went searching for this quote because it's too insane to be real. Like, it's just too insane. It had to come from somewhere. Is no. that what I'm, you're getting at? It had yeah. to come from somewhere. Well, no, and nobody would... It would be the end of your political career if you said that out loud. Oh, absolutely. And so Marion Barry, he is he is a problematic historical figure. He was heavily involved in the civil rights movement. And he was... He was involved in the Student Action for Nonviolence. I can't remember the exact organization name for it. During Vietnam, and he pushed heavily for civil rights. And he founded a charity where Ben Shapiro's is, I believe, called FAIR. Let's see here. I think it was something like that. I can't remember what the acronym stood for, but I think it was something like FAIR. Yeah. Yeah, Ben Shapiro's was called FAIR, and Marion Barry was responsible for founding a charity called Pride, which is why I'm saying that he didn't model it after Black Lives Matter. He modeled it after Marion Barry and these people's charity that actually existed. That makes sense from what you're describing right here. I can see where you would draw a through line like that. And what Pride did was say you were a convicted felon, because a lot of times in the 60s and into the 70s, and even nowadays, you would have trouble getting work, like especially like for something like a drug charge or something like that. Nobody wanted to hire you. So he said, well, we'll hire you. And what they were paying you to do was do things like sweep alleyways, pick up trash on the sidewalk, Okay, well, in space, that like, doesn't sound too bad. That kind of stuff. And people did, it actually did pull people out of, like, bad, dire circumstances to where people were like, hey, this gave me my first job, and I was able to elevate myself from that. Yeah, because they were able to prove through getting a second chance like that that they are, they have been rehabilitated. They've learned from their mistakes, and they want to start over as a better person and make amends. And Ben Shapiro's thought process on this was he was modeling Levon and them after this book I'm about ready to read you some passages from that are going to make you go oh okay I see where this is all coming from now just having read the back of the book that you're talking about makes me uncomfortable I actually didn't read the book Chris read this and took one for the team this research book so i'm going to be discovering these things with you guys and being probably equally as horrified as you guys are with all the things he's going to tell us the book in question is called new york dc la and the fate of american big cities 
The Future Once Happened Here by Fred Siegel. And the way I know Ben Shapiro read this book is Ben Shapiro referenced this article, this book in an article in Breitbart in, in December 8th, 2014, titled Sharpton, Blacks Can't Act Decently Without More Government Payouts. Ooh, that's a title for an article. And that that's a choice, and that's a very racist choice. <laughs> unlike unlike this book, I'm going to read through that will say that something was from an interview, but won't actually cite the exact date or like issue of the paper that it took place in. That's not at all sketchy. She said sarcastically. <laughs> like, and I tried, and I looked, and I scrounged around to see if I could find it. I could not find it, and nothing else is cited. The only thing that's cited for a lot of these quotes is it'll say something like Washington Post, nineteen eighty-eight, like that kind of thing, to where it doesn't actually give you a day of the issue. It just tells you, hey, it took place during this year. But it being a famous political civil rights leader, you should be able to find that issue. Right, and the the date is just vague enough that they think you're not going to waste your time looking through skeins and skeins and skeins of papers from that year. And so they're going to think that you're going to just take it as fact. I did waste plenty of time looking for it. It might exist, but I did not find it. But unlike him, I am able to tell you that I know for a fact Ben Shapiro has read this book, and I can give you an article where he cited it as something he read. And in that same article, he uses the same Marion Barry quote. So I know it is something just ingrained in his mind. This so far sounds like it tracks, and I am very nervous. And he uses Marion Barry, and again, like I said, he is a problematic mayor. Like, he did eventually become mayor of D.C. He got busted for using crack. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> Did serve time for that, came back, got reelected. He's been accused of stealing from his own organization of pride, but was never convicted on grand jury charges or anything like that. Oh, wow. So I view, I like I said, he is a very problematic person, had his own demons and things, but mm -hmm. overall, my personal stance is the good he provided the community kind of outweighs that for me. I mean, with pride being what it was and what it's done, like, I definitely can respect someone who would put something like that, that together to give people another chance. Especially with, I feel like people were probably wrongly convicted because of racism, Yeah. to put it bluntly. So I feel like that did do a lot of good for those people. But the main argument of this book, of The Future Ones Lived Here by Fred Siegel, is that... People of color in those communities use riots as bargaining chips in the political process of basically doing exactly what that quote said of give us what you want or we're going to riot, which is not a thing. Right. And to further prove that, like his his intro in this book, the, the first chapter in this book. Is called the riot ideology. Oof. Okay. Where he to the point. basically talks about how, and it's really fucked up that he does this. That riots done by Caucasians and white people are different in what they were trying to do than people of color. This kind of circles back to my question about the terrorism thing too. What's ethical? And what's not? That kind of hints towards my answer. That I'm seeking for that as well. But we'll get to that. And so I'm going to read you the basically the page I found that contains the exact quote that he put into his book. Oh boy. So I'm going to give I'm going to read this quote for you that is word for word what he was read what he requoted. And this is on page 82 of The Future Once Happened Here by Fred Siegel. Again, me citing my work, unlike this man. Um, and this is him qu uh, quoting this to Marion Barron. It's difficult to sort out the mix of idealism and opportunism that drove Barry, but he clearly understood the emerging, the emerging race game. I know for a fact, white people get scared of the Black Panthers, Barry explained. And they might give money to somebody a little more moderate. In, so, 
That is the exact quote. I was going to say, that's almost verbatim. Like, maybe a little tweaking on Ben Shapiro's part, but basically exactly the same exact, almost word for word of what that is. Holy crap, you guys. I know that this isn't a video episode, so you can't see my face, but I'm, like, chilled to the bone. Like, full body, like, chill right now. And I have the heater literally blaring on me, and I feel a chill. And this is claimed by him to uh, be from a Carmichael interview in the Washington Post, where he also claims that Carmichael said the following that I'm going to read to you, which is also very problematic and very much leans into what Shapiro was showing Levon do in his book. And I'm I'm going to say that two of these things are in brackets, and I will say when they are in brackets. My role would be to properly coordinate, bracket, the riot, bracket, to inflict as much damage as possible on the enemy, and then to receive as much concessions, bracket, as possible, bracket, from the enemy on behalf of the people. Okay. That's... Wow. Just... Wow. I don't really have words for that. It's pretty messed up. So, he's... He's insinuating that Marion Barry was the good cop and that in this Carmichael was the bad cop. Basically, he's in his book saying Big Jim is Marion Barry and Levon is Carmichael. No, I can see this. This is like straight off the page, re like worked for a different story, but exactly the same thing. Like this is dead on. Spot on, dead on, like, you cannot make this crap up. Like, he's just a gross person. Yeah. (laughs) Now, if we want to further, like, laugh at this person, um, we... Now, is this nervous laugh or actually LOL kind of laughing? This is LOL laughing. He wants to use the the plural term of duds. But oh, and I told you about this. You did tell me about this. He writes out, he writes out dudes, and it's it's very <laughs> funny. It literally says D U D E S. Literally, he showed me this page. I know what he's about to talk about, and wow. And so I'll just read you a a, a passage of it, <laughs> just just so we can laugh at this man. All of pride, business, except the apartments, which became a cash cow for Barry's second wife and business partner, Mary Treadwell, lost money. But that didn't matter to the dudes. (laughs) Dude bros didn't care. Who went into business for themselves. Yeah, and he he meant duds. Like, he was was trying to say that they were dum-dums. And... (laughs) It's my dude guy. My dude bro. It's throughout the book he does this. Dude bro. Dutious Gaius. He's such a, like, gross person. He's so gross we can't think of any other words because it kind of breaks our brain to realize that people like this exist in the world and expect us to be okay with it and even on board with their gross ideologies. And one of the goals of Levon in the actual book itself is community policing, and this man does actually write a little bit in his book about community policing. And this is a quote in that. It it wasn't just liberals who were intimidated. Barry had the police buffaloed as well. The ghetto argued the Urban League Sterling Tucker is now occupied territory. The first step in ending the occupation, he argued, was churning over welfare and the police to community control. As long as whites ran the police department, even drug dealers said Tucker were just prisoners of war. But by turning the police, policing over to the healing power of the black community control, he expected a therapeutic process to begin that would solve the suffering that had procured the criminality in the first place. No, Ben Shapiro does use exactly this this yes. here it, during Levon's story. Like, this is what he turns Levon into. Yep. It's what Levon ends up demanding, but we'll get into that more later, how it comes to be to that point. But this is basically spot on Levon's storyline, give or take. So he, essentially he pulled from this. He pulled directly from this. Like directly, directly. 
I'm stunned, honestly, at how almost this was a copy-paste with some things moved around. Wow. Like, I, can, I can read you some other stuff in here that's just, again, word for word. Like, you can see the differences, like, to where he's using Levon and Big Jim in places of Carmichael and Marion Barry. It says, Carmichael, I, ideologue infatuated with violence, separated from... From the far craftier Barry, who hedged his bets by giving up nonviolence without issuing an open call for taking up the gun. In 1967, a year before the Washington riots, Barry threatened that unless D.C.'s housing problems were dealt with, Watts-like violence might erupt. Barry learned to walk the line between threatening violence and presenting himself as the alternative, he explained. Like I believe, as far as blacks are concerned, we should use all and every means we want to. And those persons who want to go out and shoot policemen, that's their thing. You know, it's not mine. I know this is a podcast, and I'm supposed to be talking, but this some of these things have me genuinely speechless. Like, I don't know what to say because I'm just, I'm horrified. He, he pulled directly from this book. So if you're if you're wondering why Ben Shapiro, like people that have reviewed this book, have talked about how like his views on on the people of color community and black people in particular are really disgusting, and they've wondered where he got such an insane idea as this. It's from this book. This book shaped his views on the civil rights movement. Because this book came out in the mid-90s when Ben Shapiro was young. Yeah, Ben Shapiro's like our age. You say he was born in 84? Yeah. This is the book that's responsible for shaping his views. Dang, so when we're just studying typical things as kids, Ben Shapiro's reading this. Ben Shapiro was having his brain rotted out by this man. Or maybe he found it later when he was a teenager or something, but that's crazy. Who decided to blame all of the problems of cities on riots and the people of color communities. Meanwhile, trying to imply that this is all a ploy so people of color can get what they want by guilting the white people. And that they will always riot to guilt white people. So like their children that cry when they don't get their way. When really, they just want the same rights as everyone else. They want to be treated like human beings. Now, I did tell you that I had a quote for you that we were going to debate at the end of this because it's problematic. And it goes into what you were asking about, which is what are his views on terrorism and whether or not it's ethical. And what makes it ethical versus Mm -hmm. what makes it a horrible crime. So... There's, and we'll get into his death later on in, when we review the overall book. But Oh, so you're reading from True Allegiance now and not the other I am, book. I'm reading from True Allegiance by Ben Shapiro to get this quote. Okay. And it's related to terrorism. Um, one of the characters named Aiden has passed away, who is related to the cop that was broken out of prison, who's named Ricky... O'Sullivan. But also is really close with Soledad and yep. ties that together. And they're with Soledad and Aiden has just been killed by the U.S. government in a very problematic way. We'll get into in our next episode, but I wanted to read this quote because it's an interesting quote and I feel like this is the appropriate episode to debate this quote on. Okay. I guess because it's a setup for everyone else who hasn't read this book, right? And a discussion for us to have it's, to answer a yes. question that I've got. This is from Ricky's, Ricky O'Sullivan's point of view. That is probably arguably the most problematic character. Who's who's supposed to be Aiden's childhood best friend, which we'll, like I said, we we have a whole section that we're going to get to involving Ben Shapiro's wonky timeline and terrible book. Yes, I know we keep saying we'll get to it. Next episode, we're literally talking about everything to do with the book. We just wanted to give you guys some background as far as what to expect, what might have shaped this, and what are Ben Shapiro's views on these sorts of things. So we, um, when we say we'll get to it, we do promise we're going to give you a whole deep dive episode on True Allegiance on the next one. And how this book basically came to existence out of Ben Shapiro's mind. 
But anyway, here's the quote from Ricky. Meanwhile, after Aiden's death, Ricky snapped back into the zombie state he'd been in before the rescue. He felt like a man apart alone, and the headlines about Soledad didn't surprise him. Of course, the media and many Americans would celebrate her death. It was the easiest thing to do. Better to cheer the downfall of the lone terrorist than to hold up the cause for understanding. And that's what kind of sparked my question. It's like, okay, well, he's justifying and, like, deifying her for her act of terrorism at the beginning of the book because she was mad because it affected her farm, basically, instead of thinking of the bigger picture. So what made that worth deifying and this character worth... I don't know, what made her act less evil than the acts of the other terroristic characters in this book? Because to me, I understand being passionate about a cause and really wanting to do what's necessary, but I also will never justify violence in that way, like doing something that could harm the community or something that causes death to people when it wasn't necessary. Like, I don't feel like she didn't even consider other ways to go about it. And her means, or her means, her end was somewhat more selfish, I think, than other terroristic acts that Ben Shapiro would consider criminal. I mean, I understand she had employees that she was trying to take care of, but compared to what they were trying to save by having that dam, was it really justifiable for her to say, you know, screw this, I'm going to destroy this, potentially killing people? No, and... The other thing is, is he's he's arguing that when objective, like, the only way to view this is Ben Shapiro's argument on terroristic acts is anything terroristic that happens needs to be objectively looked at in the sense of, well, why was the terroristic act done? Is there some morality within that? Okay, but that doesn't answer my question because what's morality to Ben Shapiro, which I feel like he has a very skewed moral compass and, from what little I know about him versus what's moral to me. That's not going to match up. So what's, and I'm not going to go out killing people to get my way. The, one of the things I thought about when I read that quote and the reason I wanted to bring it up, I guarantee you with his views on Islam and his views on Muslim people that Ben Shapiro would say the 9-11 terrorist attacks were like an awful unredeemable thing that's partially what this book is actually about so yes and i think i agree with that like basically people shouldn't end up dying for things their government did i agree a hundred percent and but the problem i have with this is by saying that and him trying to like dress it up like in this his character that is a terrorist in the book dressing it up and saying like this is different because this character's doing this for patriotism in America blah blah blah. Sweet little Soledad who make cookies for the people swatting her. Now something that happened during our childhood Mm -hmm. that was something done by people that came to save Soledad in the books is the Oklahoma City bombing. Ooh wee. Where a white supremacist went and bombed a federal government building because he wanted to kick off a civil war and didn't agree with the U.S. federal government. And had problems, just like Clive and Bundy did, with the U.S. government's handling of Waco and Ruby Ridge and was overly radicalized. And these are one of the people that showed up to help Soledad. Which is like the patriotism. They call it the patriot movement. Like you can look it up. It's it's wackos. Um, but this guy committed terrorism and blew up a federal building. Yes. Killed people. Yes. It's not justifiable by any means. It's fucked up. And Pardon my French. Like that's not okay. The juxtaposition between this, which happened in the mid nineties, mm-hmm. and. 9-11, mm-hmm. it, to me, is the same thing. Yeah, one I see of, where you're going with that. One of them is homegrown Yes. in his terroristic act, which is the one Ben Shapiro is arguing we need to look through the lens of. 
He's... So we need to empathize with the one that is from the country, so did the act in the country, but we don't need to try to empathize with how someone could get there from another country that has issues with our country. He's in in that the the only way I can read that passage is him basically saying like if you're not from here and you do terrorism, yeah. I think it's, I think it's bad. Yeah. But if you're from here and you do terrorism, I can kind of understand why. It might be okay depending on if it agrees with what I agree with. Well, Ben Shapiro thinking that way. I, of course, not ever thinking it's okay to do anything like that ever for any reason at all. Are you, are you saying this podcast unequivocally denounces terrorism and we're not going to... I, Elsa Rochelle Talvey, am anti-terrorism on every level. Neither I am anti-violence when it can be avoided. None of us are pro-terrorism. But we're having this debate because of this passage in the book. And it always, like, when I first read that, the first thing I thought of was, what? Like, just because of how, like, hard the book is towards people, like, from the Middle East. And it's saying, like... Oh, we're like this because, and we have to be this pro to police this area because awful things can happen. And it's one of those things of, with this, I immediately, because it happened during my childhood and Ben Shapiro's childhood. And my childhood. And Elsa's childhood. Because we're all about the same age. Thought about the Oklahoma City bombing when I read that passage. and And all I could think to myself is, what does Ben Shapiro view, in your terms, as a morally ethical terroristic act? Exactly. And then if his argument is that it's a terroristic act with no casualties, where, like, bombing a dam, let's be real, is not something that would not have casual... Like, There's that at least injuries involved with that. There's probably also casualties, because... You destroyed a dam. It's holding so much, you know, a great amount of water back. You destroy that. That water is going to need a place to go. But the thing is, I guarantee you, and he would have a problem if we brought up the Weather Underground, who did similar terroristic acts where they were bombing federal buildings because they disagreed with the Vietnam War. And they were waiting until they were empty and free of civilians to not cause casualties. And luckily, they didn't kill anyone. Still problematic. Still very problematic, and I think most people would say, not cool. (laughs) Um, I guarantee you he would say they're terrorists and they all belong in jail. And the reason he would say that is because they're left-leaning. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was trying to get at with that question is, basically anything that matches his skewed views of, well, from my perspective, his skewed views of morality is terrorism. Anything that matches his skewed views that's okay. It's justified. They're good people with good cause, and sometimes there's just collateral damage. You would you would probably refer to them as, like, freedom fighters yes, or something like that. The right loves that term. But, freedom fighters. Oh, my God. But again, like, if that's, like, so he ends up contradicting himself. So yes. if, if his argument would be, well, I don't view it as terrorism if somebody like Soledad does this, and then you brought up the weather underground, he would immediately start arguing with you that they're terrorists, he's contradicting himself. And then if his argument is that, well, I only believe that it's not terrorism if it's done by, like, the Patriot Movement or something like that, then he's still contradicting himself. And he would actually have to define first what is patriotic and what movements qualify as that. Like, he would have to pre-qualify that before he could make his argument. I'm just using the Patriot movement in the sense of, like, the one percenters, the sovereign citizen types, like, those kinds of people. Ugh, sovereign citizens. Because that's the kind of person that Timothy McVeigh was who orchestrated the Oklahoma City bombings. Mm -hmm. And if he's going to argue that he only views those people as not being terrorists, then by that logic, he is endorsing the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City. Yeah, even even if it's not directly so, in a matter of speaking, yes, he is, because it matches his argument. Either way, putting putting that in his book in the way that he put it in his book with the characters he had saying it is overly problematic. Well, and the way he tried to overly make Soledad seem like this empathetic character. Oh, she's a sweet mother type. She baked cookies for the guy swatting her property. And she was doing this to take care of her workers and and the honor of her dead husband, right? That was in there too? It's just, 
to me at its at its core it's just a gross statement to make to yeah. say well let's think about the terror like the point of view of the terrorist there's a better way to word that and he's only saying it in certain parts so really do you want me to do that or do you want me to see it through your eyes of what you think is okay because that's really what this book is is very toxic propaganda because if he if he's saying that it's no it's just supposed to be a blanket statement then he's wanting us to all look at the morality of all terroristic acts which is what i'm saying and whether or not we view them as ethical or moral which i don't think he is i really do think he is just saying like well, we need to see, we need to think to ourselves and reflect on why, what would make an American citizen so mad that they would commit terrorism on the United States government. We do need to consider that, but we need to consider that to solve the problem, not to be justifying this and not justifying that. I do agree we have to look at it, and we need to, you know, just on a bigger picture look at, well, you know... This well, isn't about my whole political view. Well, you could argue that the problem is, is a lot of people that he is self-identifying with through this book and through Soledad and her teaming up with those people, those people, they're upset because they have some wacky notion in their head that white people have been displaced and lost their place in society. White people who, you know, stole this country from Native Americans have been displaced. So, just just wanted to remind everybody that. So his argument is essentially thinking about, oh, we need to think about why they feel this way. And it's like, that's gross, Ben Shapiro. That's really disgusting. It's very telling and disgusting. Like, Mr. Shapiro. <laughs> So, again, it comes down to that whole comparison I made at the start of this conversation of if he's viewing 9-11 as terrorism, which is throughout this book. Yeah, this book is, it's a through line in the book. It's weird to make this argument Mm -hmm. that homegrown terrorism is okay. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, he is justifying, like, an earlier terroristic attack that did cost lives. Yeah. I, again, am speechless. I'm doing great at doing this whole podcasting thing, (laughs) being speechless at all these horrible things. Well, I think that's going to conclude this conversation of the groundwork of Ben Shapiro's true allegiance. Yeah, at this point, I'm kind of speechless at, you know, the horrors of how people can think the way that I believe Mr. Shapiro thinks. We do have a we do have a second episode coming up where we are going to actually discuss the writing of the book, the formatting of the book, the awful, awful what we have dubbed the timeline of the book because it's terrible, and we need to. There discuss is it. so much to talk about in the timeline, like. But we will we will get to it. This, thank you for joining us and be kind to one another. Yes, please treat each other with respect, treat each other with love, and thank you for coming to hang out with us. We will see you. We will see you in two weeks. (laughs) In two weeks on the following Thursday.